Praise the Lord. He is worthy to be praised tonight. It's good to see everyone here on this Sunday night. Tonight I'm going to get right into the Word. This morning uh, we gathered together to agree, believing, to believe that God's glory is coming in these last days. Now, but if we believe that, then we also must believe there's a harvest coming. Because the purpose of him pouring out his spirit in this last days, church, is to empower us to reach the harvest. And I've got a message again that's, I call it another preparation message because God's preparing the church. I guess I'm using these Sunday nights to, last week I felt was kind of a preparation message for the church. I think this is too. God's trying to prepare us to get ready because the harvest is coming. I seen an image, a very tragic image the other day on TV. It was of what's going on in Afghanistan. I seen the troops on one side and I seen all these people on the other side of the wall. Fear in their face. Bound, hurt, oppressed. Had been abused. And there's not a one of us, not a single patriot, who wouldn't be for going in and getting them out. Amen? Now, using that as an analogy, there shouldn't be a single Christian who's not interested in going and getting the people in our nation living in sin out of their sin, out of their bondage, out of their hurt, out of their pain. Because that's what we're called to do. The administration made a very terrible mistake. They pulled the troops. And now we have them, people who are caught behind enemy lines. And we as a church, we've got to reach them now. Because I'm telling you, the rapture of the church is coming. When God calls this army out, who's ever left is going to be caught behind enemy lines. And we got work to do, and we got a limited time to do it. And we must be the church and be prepared to reach this harvest. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to go to the book of Luke, chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. A very familiar passage of Scripture. And it says, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that, Jesus sat at meeting in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within him, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touched him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he said, Matthew, stay on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence, the other 50. And when he had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them loved the most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, Thou has rightly judged. In the first part of this chapter I just read, 
A man named Simon has invited Jesus to the house to eat with him. Now, Simon was a Pharisee. He was a religious church member. Jesus accepts the invite. While Jesus was there, a woman who was known as a harlot, a prostitute, a sinner, makes her way into the house also. And she falls at Jesus' feet, and with her tears in her hair, she washes Jesus' feet in front of everyone. Then she takes her alabaster box containing a very expensive fragrance and pours it on his feet. Simon, upon seeing this and watching Jesus' response, expresses, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would have known who was washing his feet and he would not have allowed this. How they would, Jesus, upon knowing Simon's heart, confronts him about this and his religious piety. We talked about that last week, how they're going to miss the move of God every time. In verse 34, he says to Simon, do you see this woman? And you must notice he said woman. Jesus saw her as a woman. Simon the Pharisee saw her as nothing more than a harlot and a sinner. If we're going to reach the people, minister to people, gather the harvest, we have got to see people like Jesus sees people. All too often, Churches are full of a lot of Simons, religious church folks, who can't see past the sin and see the person. Jesus can see in you what no one else can see in you because he created you, and he knows who he created you to be. We must become like Jesus, see people like he sees them. When someone comes walking in them doors all messed up, we got to see them for who they are, not for who they become. When they repent, we got to see them as forgiven, and not still as a sinner. There are those who are reluctant to come to this altar, to the feet of Jesus, because they believe they've done so much or too much that they can't come to his feet and be forgiven. Let me tell someone, don't worry about what everyone else thinks. Just come as you are, and Jesus will not turn you away. He is not religious. He is righteous. Jesus don't look at you like everyone else does. He sees you too often when no one else does. I know he did in me. He knew her sins, but yet he saw a woman. Now let's read Luke 7, verses 44 through 50 to complete the passage. He asked Simon another question. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Simon, seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house that gives me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with anointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And then that they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, thy faith has saved thee, go in peace. Now let's go back to verse 44. Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? Look at someone and ask somebody, say, do you see this woman? We could talk about her faith, but today I want to talk about her fa face. To see this woman is to see yourself. When God comes into the world as Jesus Christ, According to John 1 and 14, the word was made flesh and he dwelt amongst us. So when his spirit took on flesh, a human body like ours, all of a sudden God has a face. Now Christ is 100% man and 100% God. 
Do you remember when Jesus said, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father? Prior to Jesus coming to the world, God really didn't have a face. Well, when Jesus comes, all of a sudden we see the face of God through this young Galilean prophet by the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. And it's God's goal in this text through his son, Jesus, to have an encounter with this woman that is face to face with him. But the problem is when you get a well-churchified man like Simon in the room interfering with God's plan, the text declared, verse 1, he's a Pharisee. He's a religious leader. And here we have a religious man who has a prostitute in his home while he's hosting Jesus at the very same time, and he didn't like it. Let me declare something. It is possible to host Jesus and a sinner at the same time. Some church folks don't like it when sinners come in. Jesus don't mind, though. In fact, Jesus put it like this. When you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. When you've clothed the poor, when you've fed the hungry, when you've visited the sick, when you visit those in prison, it's as though you've done it unto me, he says. It's when you haven't done unto the least, that's when you have missed showing them me. How many know people can see Jesus through you, and they should? He was clear, when you do, when you do for them, you're doing for me. In other words, Jesus impresses upon us, even in this text, that it is possible to invite Jesus and invite sinners at the same time. It's not right when the only people who ever show up for church are saved folks. Something is wrong. When we think we are too holy for sinners to come in here and sit amongst us, we have become self-righteous, and we must never ever forget our righteousness is filthy as rags. When saved folk are happy with only us 24 and we don't need no more, then you have doctrinalized self-righteousness and you're void of his presence. That's why some churches are dead as a hammer. Jesus has a plan and a purpose. He's come for the lost. Folks, whether, whether your religious spirit likes it or not, Jesus eats with sinners. The Pharisees always questioned, who is this man who eats with sinners? He didn't come for the well, he came for the sick. You see, unlike this Pharisee, Jesus is not intimidated by the past of people. He's not threatened by their sin. He's not restricted by their bondage. He has come to seek, find, and save that which was lost. Sadly, there are some places, it's hard to call them churches, that sinners aren't welcome. It's like they got a prerequisite. Get saved, then come see us. And actually, it still hinges on what you were saved from, whether you're welcomed. I like the little story that's told that Jesus was sitting outside of a church and a, and a young man came walking by him with hair down his back and a long beard and he, he walked into the doors of the church and it wasn't long he came walking out of the church and they, Jesus said, what's your problem, young man? He said, they wouldn't let me in. He said, it's okay. I, they didn't let me in either. And there's truth to that. The Pharisee is beside himself because he's got Jesus, this supposed religious teacher, this miracle worker, the son of God, sitting in the same room as a sinner. Now, I don't know if this excites you or not, but I'm glad to know and I'm glad to read that Jesus has proximity with people who have a past. I'm just glad to know he hangs out with people who've got everything messed up. 
I know it's a fact that he does because I remember him hanging out with me one night, February 24th, 1997, in my house. And because of his presence and his love, I gave my heart to Jesus that night right there in that room. Simon has invited Jesus to his house. He does not invite Jesus to his house because he's had any kind of loyalty or friendship with him or relationship or love for him, for Jesus or his ministry. He invites Jesus into his house for his own sorted motives. We know this because Jesus exposes his motives before this text ended, before the scene changes. Jesus says to him, beginning with verse 44, he tells Simon, I know you really don't want me here, Simon, because when I came in, you didn't do for me the ordinary customary things you usually do for your guest. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't kiss me. You didn't anoint my head as to say to me, we welcome you. He spoke nothing of me to your friends. And Jesus shows up that he's been invited for all the wrong reasons. But what Jesus is sitting down, reclining with his elbow at the table, with his feet stretched out along the floor, Jesus all of a sudden feels something wet, warm. Soft drops of water fall on his feet. Then realizing they were actually tears. He doesn't turn to see who it is. He's watching Simon's reaction. He feels the presence of this woman. He's been touched by this woman. How many know Jesus is touchable? She cries at his feet. Then she takes her hand and begins to wipe his feet. Then she takes her alabaster box and the expensive fragrance that was in it, the most expensive item she owned, and she begins to wipe his feet with this oil. And Simon is appalled by her actions. Simon had really only brought Jesus in this house to test his messiahship. And according to his religious standards, Jesus is not responding right. Simon believed the Messiah, a king, don't act like him. Simon said, if he were a prophet, he would have known whom and what manner of woman is touching him. So now Simon, in his head, is thinking, this can't be the son of God. He can't be a real prophet. Because if he were a prophet, he would know who was touching his feet. Religious folks always think they know more about God than anyone else. They know everything there is to know about God. Just ask them. They know how he moves, what he likes, and what he don't like, what he can and what he can't do, who is saved and who isn't saved. But what Simon didn't apparently know, it was because Jesus did know who she was, is why he allowed her to do it. Somewhere in his study, Simon missed that God is omniscient, all-knowing. He knew everything about this woman and about Simon as well. He knew Simon's motives, and he knew this woman. You might fool men, folks, but you can never fool God. God judges you by the intent of your heart. Jesus is not intimidated by this woman. Religious folks may be intimidated by a prostitute, but Jesus isn't. So Jesus says to Simon, can I tell you something in verse 40? Simon says, go ahead. Jesus says, let me tell you a story about two men who both owed a debt to the same creditor. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50 denarii. Neither could pay his debt, so the creditor freely forgave them both of their debt. And he asked Simon, which one of these men will love him more for it? Simon says, and rightfully so, the one who was forgiven the more. The one forgiven of the 500, Jesus says, you're right. Now watch this. In the parable story, you got two men, two debts owed, with only one grace. God's grace 
is one size fits all. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, as he's not a respecter of persons, the same grace that forgave the 50 is the same grace that forgave the 500. But it's the response and appreciation of those that have been forgiven that is always the difference. Come on, somebody, and how they respond. It's the realization of just how much you've been forgiven of that produces the amount of response of appreciation you give God. If you don't realize how much you've been forgiven of or even realize you've been forgiven, you're not going to be very appreciative. But the moment you do, watch out. It's not the fact he was forgiven of 50 and him 500 because it took the same grace to forgive. What is the difference is how they saw themselves because the two men don't see themselves the same because the man who owes 500 sees himself more blessed, forgiven him much more, more highly favored than the other man who only owed 50. Not because it was a difference in grace, because his life has changed the most. The realization that the creditor was willing to forgive him who owed so much more, who was indebted so much more, so it is with Christ when he forgives your sins. Regardless how much you've done, you're forgiven by one grace. Let me put it this way. You're not no better than anyone else just because you didn't owe as much as they owed. Hadn't done what they had done. You were born into sin as everyone else was. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And whosoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved regardless. You can't say, I only owed 50. That guy owed 500. There is no justification to that. The self-righteous say, well, at least I only owed 50. Unlike him, he owed 500. At least I haven't done as much as him. It's like believing I only stole a pack of cigarettes, but that guy committed adultery. Hey, I was raised in a Christian home, but he was raised in a highly dysfunctional home. Can I get real? You aren't any more saved than anyone just because you didn't smoke crack. You're not any more saved than any more saved than anyone else because you never gambled or you never stole anything or you never slept in a hotel with a man you didn't know, or you never cussed or drank. Religious folks don't like hearing this. The fact is, according to Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when you've given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, you are just as saved as you're ever going to be saved. Sin is sin. We're all born into sin in need of a Savior. It's only, and it's by only one grace Regardless of the death of sin, we are saved. There's no greater forgiveness for one than the other. The difference is only that some sins carry greater consequences for your life than others. But when it comes to being saved from sin, sin is sin. God's grace covers it all. And the requirement to be saved is the same regardless of the size of the sin. We're all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. And all of us are righteous. All of us, our righteousness is as filthy as rags. But when we are redeemed, we are washed white as snow. You're no more saved than anyone else. You're just saved. You were as much a sinner as anyone else. And so was I. The apostle Paul declared, 
I was the chiefest of sinners. Self-righteous folks may not like to hear that. Just because you only owed 50 and I owed 500 don't make you any better than me, any more saved than me. It took the same amount of grace to save me as you. But I thank God because I realized I owed the 500. And I know you only owed 50, but I know I owed 500. And I'm forever grateful for his grace. Therefore, I realize I have been forgiven of so much. Now, I see the halo over your head because you only owed 50, and you believe you weren't all that bad. But I owed 500, and I thank God my life has been radically changed because he forgave me the more, and now I love him the more. That's why I praise him. That's why I sing. That's why I offer him everything. That's why I bow down and worship this king because he gave his everything. Can you give God praise tonight? He did it so that I may have life and have it more abundantly. Come on, somebody. Anybody else here feel that way? Okay, okay, so now we know why praise and worship is different in the lives of many people. Here's the answer to your question. How is it in the church? Some people can lift their hands, clap their hands, shout, dance, run the aisles, well, speak in tongues, or fall on their knees and weep, while other folks cross their arms and never move in a worship service. Set there motionless, never responsive to the presence of God. Now, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm trying to help some folks right here. You know I love you. I'm here to help someone like this revelation has helped me. Some of you have been wondering how. I figured it out. Some of you haven't realized just how much you've been forgiven of yet. Or some of you think you weren't forgiven much. The worst I ever done was. And some of you don't believe you're ever forgiven. One of the three, I feel the Holy Ghost right here. Because if you ever figure that out, how much God has taken off your account of what you owed, if you ever figure out how much grace has been extended to you, then could nobody, nobody, nobody keep you from praising and worshiping God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. You will lift your hands when you want to. You will speak in tongues when you want to. You will clap your hands when you want to. You will dance when you want to. You will shout when you want to. You will come to this altar when you want to. Look at someone, tell them, that's why I act like I do. Tell them it's because when I come here on Sunday and the music begins and we begin to sing about my Savior, I start having flashbacks. Uh-huh. And begin to see and remember just how far he's brought me. There are folks who can testify Last year, I was in a crack house. This year, I stand here free, delivered in God's house. Last month, Jack Daniels was my friend, but now Jesus is my friend. When I was 18, I sold my soul to the devil, but Jesus bought me back with his blood. That's why I praise him. That's why I sing, and that's why I worship my king. I get it. I realize how much I've been forgiven of. I realized had it not been for the grace of the Lord, I would have never made it. And it produces a response of appreciation that leads to my participation, therefore breeding an expectation of God's demonstration. Come on, somebody. Oh, if you can only get a hold of this word. 
the atmosphere here would start changing tonight because it would become charged with your praise that would invite his presence. Go ahead, somebody, praise him. Let's have some church in here tonight. Can somebody praise him? If you really, truly realize you're forgiven, then the Holy Spirit wouldn't have to prime you and pump you to respond. It wouldn't take a, a certain song to stir you. God is so tired of pumping and priming and prying and trying to get a response from us. It's not due to an absence of his presence. It's an absence of your participation and appreciation of his presence. Hallelujah. I don't love him because I got a big home or a big car or a big bank account. I love him because he's a great big God with a great big heart who loved me when I wasn't lovable, when I didn't love myself. When I was at my worst, he gave me his best. While I was yet a sinner, he loved me and he died for me. I owed a debt I could not pay, and he paid a debt I did not owe. He did, he did not owe. He hated my sin, but he loved this old sinner. Upon realizing that, I'm at the place. If he never does nothing for me ever again, I still love him, and I'll still love him till the end because he forgave me of so much, so much, so much, so much more. Why is it we can go to Walmart, find a sell on something? Something that used to cost $150. Woo, now it's only $50. And we get so excited about how much we saved that we can't wait to get our cell phone out. We can't get it out fast enough to call somebody and tell them. You know, you call your mama, and then you call all three of your kids, then you call your two uncles. You're all your three neighbors, your five friends, and two of them don't even, you don't even like anymore, and a fellow employee because you're so excited and you want them to have what you got. Why you are shouting it from the rooftops, it should have cost $150. Now it's only $50. This is why I love Walmart. You even tell folks you don't know in the store because you're so happy about your deal. You stop and say, hey, you want to save some money? Go to aisle three. Twinkies are only a dollar a box. Get you some of that. You know I'm right. But yet be forgiven of Christ for everything you've done. All that messed up, immoral, unjustifiable, pre-purposed stuff you pulled in your lifetime and it didn't cost you nothing. It's a free gift of God. Yet we have trouble telling your family, telling your friends, telling your co-workers, telling strangers, people you don't even like about the greatest gift you'll ever receive in your life. How come that happens? The gift that didn't cost you nothing that a man named Jesus paid for with his blood. You're all hush-hush about the greatest gift of your life. You owed everything, and Christ paid for it and forgave you of your debt. Christ, a man who owed nothing, was guilty of nothing, paid for your sins with his life. And you can't say nothing about it. You can't talk about it in your inner circle. You can't show no gratitude, can't express no emotions. It's too uncomfortable to at least raise your hands or let out a little, thank you, Jesus. You can't get excited about it enough to tell someone, don't you want them to have what you got? The same deal you got? Won't you tell them to go get them some of that? I hope this does shame someone because your lack of public response shames God. 
What you got is a whole lot more valuable than a dress or a power tool that you bought for half price. If you can get excited about those things, why can't we get excited about our Lord and tell someone about what you got, how you got it, where you got it, and if they can have it too. And the best of all, it's a free gift. Look at someone and practice saying it and say, I've been forgiven. Now look at him and say, that's why I love him. I love him because he gave, gave me my sins. Because he wiped away my past. He placed my sins in the depth of the sea of forgetfulness. He turned my life around. He pulled me out of the mire clay and set my feet on solid ground. Ask somebody again. Do you see this woman yet? God wants you to see three things about this woman. This is the problem in the modern church. Jesus is in the room telling other folks to look at her, to see her. Seems to me he, he would have wanted all eyes upon himself. I mean, he's the son of God. He's the lily of the valley. He's the rose of Sharon. He's the bright morning star. He's the way maker. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's Jesus Christ. He's the Lord, Lord, and the kings of kings. Seems to me when you're all that, you should get all the attention. Not Jesus. He says, get your eyes off of me, Simon, and see what I see. See like I see. See the woman, Simon, not the sinner. Simon, do you see this woman? Not a prostitute. Not a sinner, Simon, but this woman. Now, I don't mean to mess up some more religious stuff tonight, but I can't help it. Some of you got your eyes so fixed on Jesus, you can't even see the folks sitting on the pew right next to you that need Jesus. What's the saying? So spiritually minded, but of no earthly good. Got folks sitting in every service, hurting, lost, bound, abused, lonely, sitting right by you. And you come in walking right by folks. Uh, excuse me, sir. I got to get to my seat. Uh, church is fixing to start. Walk up to a guest and say, excuse me, you're going to have to move. That's my seat. I sit there every week. Or I'm sorry, these seats are safe. Now, folks, that's stuff that will make a preacher cuss. When you act like that, you ain't saving nothing. You better save yourself from yourself. Look at someone and say, do you see me? Watch this. When they looked at the woman, they were looking at a has-been. Simon says she is a sinner, but that ain't right. Because verse 37 says she was a sinner. Tell someone, I was everyone, I was, everyone of us, every one of us was before we were saved. I was, so now, I no longer care what you bring up about me. I no longer care what you remember about me because I am now a new creature in Christ. Behold, old things are passed away and all things have become new. I'm new to you. And when they talk about you, tell them, yeah, I went to jail, but I'm a has-been. I used to do drugs, but I'm a has-been. I used to sleep around, but I'm a has-been. 
You're right, I was, but let me tell you something. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. Say what you want to. Once I was a sinner, but like it or not, now I'm a saint, blood washed child of God. Saved by the same grace through faith in Jesus Christ as you were. How do you like me now? Say something. Mm-hmm. Man, <laughs> Lord, I need you. <laughs> Man, <laughs> I'll be like that long-haired guy and get thrown out of church, maybe. <laughs> I'm just trying to be truthful. I'm just trying to open up our hearts, our minds to the thought and the expectation. There's a harvest coming, and we got to be ready and prepared to receive them. If we do not receive them the right way, we're going to lose them. Too many church folks can't never see you for nothing more than who you were. The one who was, the one who used to. The world don't think too much of has-beens, but God loves them. I want you to see three things in this one. I'm going to hurry. This woman who was a sinner, a has-been, number one, see her worship. If you want to see what the face of forgiven people look like, look at her. First of all, forgiven people are the best worshipers you'll ever meet. Some folks have been forgiven but haven't realized how much they've been forgiven of yet or don't believe you truly are, and you're bound by your past. When you realize you're truly forgiven, you won't have a problem worshiping. Look at her worship in verse 38. When she got in his presence, she knelt at his feet and behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears. Now, that's worship. I didn't say it was praise. Many get the two confused. They're not the same. There is a difference. You can praise God and not ever be saved, never even be forgiven. The only thing you've got to have to praise God is just breath. Psalm 50 says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. He didn't say, let everyone save, praise the Lord. You don't have to be saved, spirit-filled, speaking tongues. All you got to have is breath. I hear sinners utter all, utter it all the time. They'll say things, well, praise God. Or, Thank you, Jesus. I'm thinking, what? You got a lot of people go to church and praise the Lord. You praise him for what he's done. Because he got you up this morning. Because you got food on your table. Because you got a good job, a nice car, money in the bank. You praise him for the stuff. You see, praise has to be audible. It has to make a sound. There's no such thing as quiet praise. Psalms 150 says, praise him with the sound of the trumpet, with a flute and a harp and a cymbal and stringed instruments. These things all make noise, folks, sounds. You got to make a noise to praise him. This woman came in without words, though. You can't praise him without words, without a sound. So we know she wasn't praising him, but you can worship him without words, simply with your actions. Simply with your emotions. She falls at his feet and weeps. So her weeping is her worship. Silent, hot tears. She was moved by, the pres by his presence to worship him. You have not worshipped if you have not been moved by him. When you come to church and you go through the motions and are never moved, you haven't worshipped him. You can come in here unmoved and you can leave unmoved. Come in one way and leave the same way. 
If so, you haven't worshipped him in spirit and truth. Perhaps you praised him. Perhaps you made a lot of noise. <laughs> worship is not worship until you're moved, until you touch God. Worship is not simply mimicking what you see other folks do. There wasn't no one else washing Jesus' feet. She wasn't doing this out of customs or religious duty. It was genuine from her heart's expression. This was personal. It was between her and Jesus. This was her response to her forgiveness. It wasn't about God doing something for her. It was about her doing something for God. It wasn't about him touching her, but it was about her touching him. Have you ever touched God? Worship is to be genuine and personal, not a remanufactured expression of love. A lot of times what we see in our worship services is nothing more than what we see our kids do. You either got kids, or remember when you were a kid, well, understand this statement. Have you had your kids, or you as a kid, ever been to service on Sunday morning, go home, and catch the kids off in another room? I'm talking little kids. One has a curling iron for a microphone. He's the preacher. One's rolling around the floor pretending to be slain. What are they doing? They're mimicking what they just saw adults doing. They're playing church. The three-year-old and the five-year-old. Instant as can be. They don't have a true understanding of praise and worship yet. They're mimicking how grown folks act on Sunday morning. And the truth of the matter is there are some of us adults that are just as immature in our worship. All we're doing on Sunday morning is playing church. That's why you've never moved, been moved. You're just mimicking. But not this woman. She was moved by his presence to worship him. Her worship was genuine. It was her tears. It was between her and God. I know many of us try to undermine our emotions in the church to control them. Every church has what I call the frozen chosen. Some churches should be known as the first church of the Frigidaire. Folks, worship is emotional. This woman's worship was emotional. If you're crying and you can't stop crying, if you're crying and don't care who sees you, you're crying, you've been moved to worship. It started out as a prayer. And then you begin to praise. And the next thing you know, you begin to worship. And we're moved. You touch God and God touched you. God's no longer touching you. You're you're now you're touching God. If you cried so much you can take your hair and wipe the dust off his feet with your tears, that's pretty emotional. When God saved you, he saved your soul. And your soul was made up of your mind, your will, and your emotions. How can some of us act like a Comanche engine at a ball game and yet a wooden engine at the church? If folks can get excited about a man crossing a line on a field and a ball falling in a hoop, and cry over a soap opera at home, then you have every right to come in here and get excited and emotional about your salvation and your Savior. Do you see this woman? Notice her willingness, her commitment to her worship. Not only did she wash his feet with her tears, but she used her hair to wipe them and kissed his feet. I know in this modern-day culture, a woman's hair doesn't mean what it meant back in them days in that culture. But it was very important back then in their customs and beliefs. Her hair was known as her glory. 
Their hair was very important. It signified a lot about a woman. It was her pride and joy and well taken care of. But this woman wears her hair down. No Orthodox Jew ever wore her hair down. In the culture that day, wearing her hair down announced that she was a loose woman, that she could possibly be a prostitute. But here's what I love about this woman. She wasn't worried about customs or traditions or image. She was willing to use her glory. She took her glory and wiped his feet. What she was saying by her actions, her emotions, I give you my best and I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do, Lord. I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender is what her heart was saying. When you see yourself as forgiven, you won't be so cheap with God. Tithing won't be an issue. You'll be a cheerful giver. You mean I got to live holy and sanctified? It won't be an issue. You want to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and simple to God, which is your reasonable service. You mean I have to have spiritual discipline, praying, reading my Bible, serving the ministry? It won't be an issue when you realize you're forgiven. See, for some folks, that costs you too much. Only because you haven't seen yourself forgiven, your willingness is restricted, so is your willingness to give. But this one says, I've removed the boundaries. Everything I have is his, and everything I have is because of him. He forgave much, so I want to, forgive, to give him much. Some folks like being their Savior, but they don't like him being their Lord. Save me, but don't want him Lord over everything. She says, here's my glory. If she was willing to give her glory, there was nothing she wasn't willing to give. Remember, this is a woman who has given herself to many men. She, had get, she gave many men her body, but it was only Jesus, though, that she gave her soul to. Do you see this woman? Do you see her worship? Do you see her willingness, her commitment? And 30, look at her witness. She anointed him with expensive oil. Now, I know it's been preached when she gave the oil in her alabaster box. The point was she gave her best, and that is true. Because this oil was expensive. It equaled a year's wages. I want to draw a little different perspective right there, though. It is true the oil was the most valuable thing she owned. But I want you to see... She had given her best before she even anointed his feet with the oil. How's that? She gave him her, him her, her glory when she used it to wipe his feet. How is that her best? Because she gave him herself first. You see, the oil was her best possession. It was materialistic. But her hair was a part of who she was. You see, it's easier sometimes to give God some of your stuff than it is yourself. God don't want yourself. God wants you. When you give him you, when you give God you, that's your best. You can come in here and throw money in the plate, dance and shout, but until he has you, you have not given him your best. Jesus didn't die for your stuff. He died for you. He, saw, he died so that you could have a life. When he's got you, then give him the best of what you have. This is what she did. She gave herself first her best. That's what Jesus wanted. He didn't want her stuff. He didn't want her oil. She gave her glory, signifying, I surrender my life to you. So what was the alabaster box about? The alabaster box was a box that many prostitutes carried with them everywhere they went. They had to have the fragrant oil with them because they would hire out their bodies to Johns, as we call them today, that would use them in debauchery. 
They had no public restrooms in that day. She had to carry the oil with her in order to try to hide the stench of the last man that laid with her. Now, I'm getting real here. This woman took the expensive fragrant oil, a necessity, a commodity for a prostitute, and she took and poured it recklessly on his feet. She was done with it anyway because she was never going to lie with a man who wasn't her husband again. She had been saved and forgiven. This time, she's going to pour out her oil for the first time on a man who truly loved her and truly loved, and she truly loved him. Why? It was as to say, Jesus, you changed my life, and I won't need this stuff anymore. It was symbolizing, I'm laying my past down at your feet. Her alabaster box represented her past. And because of her faith in Jesus Christ, she says, here, you've changed my life. I'm not no longer who I used to be. I'm forgiven, and I won't need this anymore. Regardless of what it costs, it's worthless to me now. You are the most valuable thing to me now because I'm a new creature. Old things have passed away. Old things have become new. Her witness was to leave her past behind. How can she? She realized she had truly been forgiven. She had found someone who would love her regardless. She declared, I now reach forward to the, to the things in front of me, forgetting those things which are behind me. How many of you since giving yourself to Christ have truly worshipped him and have also broken your alabaster box, laid your past at his feet, Giving him your best, gave, gave up some stuff. That now that you're forgiven, there's things that don't mean nothing to you anymore. There's things you don't need anymore. There's places you don't need to go anymore. There's things you don't have to drink anymore, take anymore, smoke anymore. Because you laid them at the feet of Jesus, you gave him your past, and now you're a witness like this woman to the transforming power of God. Would you stand with me? Musicians, would you come? Do you see her? Did you see her worship? Did you see her willingness? Did you see her witness? God is speaking through this passage about the importance of the church to see people like Jesus sees people. 